0: previously on popping collars
1: I, I think what I've loved about the show is that it as a true ensemble with a ton of heart
0: mm-hmm. and it
1: just took some time for that ensemble to gel in the way that it could and it's always that heart of sincerity that I love about the show because like they're fighting in the bar and they were totally acting out perhaps that drunk fight you might have had in the bathroom <laughs> with a friend be like what You, but you're mad at me, and I don't know why you're acting this way. And it's like, Welcome to Pop and Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of religion and popular culture. My name is Betsy Gonzalez, and I serve as the head chaplain at the Episcopal High School here in Alexandria, Virginia. With me tonight is Greg Knight. Greg, where are you? What are you up to?
0: Uh, Hi, Betsy. I am the director of children and youth ministries at the Church of Bethesda by in Palm Beach, Florida. And can I just say that I like that you introduced the show Poppin' Collar, like Poppin' Fresh. I heard that. uh, Instead of like the popping. (laughs) I, I really, I like that. It gives it. Gives us a sense of informality that I appreciate.
1: Was that my Alabama accent? I, don't know what, I mean, <laughs> I like a good "n" with an apostrophe. So maybe we're maybe. We, oh,
0: there you go. Maybe we'll, we'll re we'll rebrand the show, popping, popping fresh.
1: All those t-shirts. I don't know what we'll, do. we'll have to deal with it later. Okay. Um, also here with us is Ricardo Avila. Ricardo, where are you? What are you up to?
2: Betsy, hi. I am the rector at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Los Gatos. California in the San Francisco South Bay area. I'm trying to think of the name of the poppin' collars little guy, the little
1: whoo-hoo. Oh, the Pillsbury you know? Doughboy. The Pillsbury Doughboy. Red the Doughboy. Trademark, TM, all that, oh. right? Maybe,
2: yeah, maybe we could use him and he could wear like a clergy collar.
1: Maybe, <laughs> it could, maybe it could be you, Ricardo. We can animate you. Oh, my god!
2: It, it won't take much more padding than I have.
1: <laughs> oh Lord. All right. All right. So let's get to our special guest for this episode. Our special guest is Reverend Timothy Siemens. Timothy, where are you? What are you up to?
3: Hello, I'm Timothy Siemens, and I'm the assistant chaplain at the Episcopal High School in Alexandria, Virginia, along with Betsy.
1: You do look vaguely familiar. (laughs)
3: Yes.
1: (laughs) Familiar in our busy life here. I think I know you. When, when When Timothy came on, one of the questions I asked him was, Well, what topic would you be interested in talking about in a podcast? So that is how we have landed on today's topic. So um, this is our 81st episode of Popping Collars. And for today's topic, we are stepping into the world of film auteur, which I appreciate that word very much, Wes Anderson. Anderson has been making films many times with the same troupe, both behind and in front of the camera, since his debut film, Bottle Rocket, in 1996. Anderson presents a quirky and very particular world of interesting characters. However, he does seem to play in similar themes throughout his work, and we'll talk a little bit about those those on this episode. So first I turn to the panel with, with a question, you know, obvious question, but a question that has a few options here. What is your favorite Wes Anderson film and why? Let's start with you, Timothy.
3: Well, my favorite would have to be the film that introduced me to him when i was a junior in high school so back in about 2001 and that's rushmore i remember just being really drawn to the main character uh max fisher the aspiring playwright and a uh, student who engages in everything except good grades <laughs> um when I was 16, I was also an aspiring filmmaker, as many 16-year-olds, I think, uh, may be. And it was clear that there was, a, I think, a sense of compassion coupled with uh, kind of a rebellious adolescence that I really appreciated about the movie.
0: And- Greg, what about you? Okay, so uh, at the risk of... Damaging this actor's career because I've gone back and listened to the show, and every time I bring up an actor's name, they get involved in some kind of scandal. Uh,
2: really? <laughs> Who else? What are you talking about? Yeah, who'd you oh, talk about? Man,
0: I've, I've name-checked, like, Kevin Spacey on the podcast and uh, and name-checked <laughs> Charlie Rose on the podcast oh, one time.
1: Greg. Kiss of death for Greg. All right, well, let's cross our fingers. So, who, so who here it you, sh-
0: you ready? I'm going to ruin somebody's career right here. Okay, Gary. Uh, I'm a Moonrise Kingdom fan. Oh. And the reason I like Moonrise Kingdom is because I think that Wes Anderson has found an actor who knows how to deliver Wes Anderson dialogue to its maximum comedy potential, and that's Ed Norton. I I think Ed Norton in Wes Anderson movies, he's just hilarious. It's just the deadpan way he delivers his lines, and especially in Moonrise Kingdom.
1: He's the scoutmaster, right? (laughs) He's the
0: scoutmaster. He plays the straight guy, but he's also just so... I, I, it's just it's just hard to put into words, you know. It, it's just the way that Wes Anderson's dialogue strives for perfection, and Ed Norton sort of strives for perfection, and it just all comes off as ludicrous uh, in the end.
1: <laughs> all right, Ricardo, what you got?
2: Uh, I'm going to go with. I hope I don't screw up the name. Is it the Grand Budapest Hotel? There you go yeah the
1: oscar-nominated um, grand budapest hotel
2: that's why i like
1: why best. why that Oh, is that more Got
2: only it. oscars
1: only awards
2: <laughs> um and the fact that it didn't win actually gave it more cachet i don't know you know I, I saw it on an airplane on one of those tiny screens on the back of the seat of the person in front of me and i was just totally captivated it's such a whole other world and there's such a mix of stuff going on there's like war and it's a caper and there's bakery and uh, the woman whose name i can't pronounce who played ladybird has a mexico birthmark on her cheek
1: <laughs> you know Breda Gerwig? And, Breda, no no, oh, no sasha sasha
2: <laughs> it's not sasha <laughs> it's like
1: sosha sosha
2: sasha sure sasha sure
0: i'm irish
1: no going to say show Ronan, <laughs> this is
0: this is like the the most entertaining podcast ever. It's just us yelling, shush, 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 shush. Listen, <laughs> she's a
1: person. <laughs> All right,
0: I so, like her. Anyway, that's my favorite. That's your favorite.
1: <laughs> um, well, I'll bring it back full circle um, because my favorite, my favorite's is Rushmore. My favorite is the same as Timothy's uh-huh. Now, like I tried to show that movie. Like I was really excited when I came to live at a boarding school, and I was like, I'm gonna show this movie one weekend when I'm on dorm duty. And I don't know what poor two girls I subjected that movie to. They were like, this is really weird. And I'm like, yeah, it's really weird. And they they didn't quite buy it. So it's just, it's just so fun and weird. But also heartbreakingly sad. If you think about the movies that you've seen by Wes Anderson, what themes are you picking up on?
0: The thing that I remember about early Wes Anderson, and I guess even late Wes Anderson, although it's, it's gotten to be more kind of uh sentimental, I think for him, but um, the way that uh, the way that his comedy is tempered by sadness. There's so a
1: mel- there's a melancholy in some.
0: Right. Movie. So, so like Bill Murray has hilarious moments in Rushmore, but the scene that always stands out to me is when uh, he sees his wife at the pool kind of flirting with the other guy and he climbs up to the top of the diving board and he, I think he still has a cigarette in his mouth when he like jumps off the diamond and he just kind of sinks to the bottom of the pool, kind of like Dustin Hoffman and the graduate. It's got that kind of like isolated, sad, you know, kind of quality to it. And I think about that, uh, also in Royal Tannenbaums where like after everything kind of happens in that movie, you know, Ben Stiller has that great line where, uh, Gene Hackman is sitting beside him and, and, uh, he says, you know, I had a really hard year, dad, you know, and, and Gene Hackman puts his arm around and it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's those sort of quiet, sort of melancholy moments that show up that you're like, wow, he, he really gets at something, you know, in these movies, like how life is kind of balanced by this, you know, bizarre things and sad things.
3: Yeah, I think it does vulnerability well without dwelling on it too long to... Mm-hmm make it a pity party or something like that. You can look at almost any of his movies and at some point they have like a crescendo of melancholy where somebody is in the pit, so to speak. And usually they're engaged with another human in that moment of, of sadness. Uh, and, And, and usually, and when the person reaches out, it's sometimes like really funny. Um, but he doesn 't shy away from kind of like that that kind of nakedness mm-hmm. of emotions
2: i 'm trying to kind of find a way to formulate this there, there are kind of characters whose romantic sensibilities or exceptionalism are just bigger than their surroundings, and that seems to come up like I think about the little kid in moonrise Kingdom who just you know he's got that adventurous spirit, and they want him to be, if I'm remembering it correctly, they want him to be a certain kind of kid, but he's he's just bold, and he takes the girl and they run away, and but they're on an island.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean there's this uh, when I think about that, Ricardo, I think about this like this duty that that characters have, they have this extreme duty that kind of overwhelms their entire character, like there is there's something that I am meant to do here. Mm-hmm. Right, and so I need to go do it because that's one of his one of his things that he will fall back on is the another one of my favorite words the caper the caper idea <laughs> and the idea of that there's a caper there's a, something that's a foot and so inside that there becomes different roles that you might play inside a caper versus you in your regular life so mm-hmm. you know kind of what's your commitment to what's going on what's happening and those sorts of things. Uh, so I agree with you. I think there's times when the characters just feel larger and some of it is because of their innate honed sense of duty that they're carrying yeah. around to. And that's sometimes little- you have
0: traits that define you that you don't necessarily like about yourself. I- I'm thinking of like chief from Isle of Dogs when he sa- when he tells people, you know, I bite and he says it in a way that's kind of like, I wish that I didn't bite, but that's who I am. I, I bite. Right. You mm-hmm. know? Right.
2: Well, certainly the little boy in Isle of Dogs and his sense of mission and duty, he just, he does this thing that no one would do in that society. He goes to rescue his dog.
1: Yeah, I think for me, some of the themes of connection and disconnection always speak to me. Because he often will explore these uh, dysfunctional families. But this idea of families that are just a little odd and a little off, but actually they represent the brokenness that all of us feel. Yeah, that we're all people who aren't always in the best places that we would like to be in terms of our relationships. And they, they represent that well. And so that, that yearning for that connection, it may be like through the caper, we can transform it and it can become something else. Um, but, uh, but like watching, you know, Max Fisher and his father or, you know, the Royal Tenenbaums themselves.
3: Yeah, and there's there's the there's both the the real family and the adopted family in a lot of his things too. I think it's an enlarged sense of family, uh, or, or who can who can actually fill that role in a lot of his movies, and, and it's usually united around an enthusiasm towards a shared common goal. At least in Rushmore, that's definitely the case. And actually, he ends his his films with the the slow mo of people together.
1: Yeah. No, I would agree in that. And I'm, and I'm a real, now that you name it in that way, I'm a real sucker for a group of people working together to try to do something. I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the <laughs> I defend the movie twister on this podcast, <laughs> it's a Group of people working together under duress. Who do you become? The guy of the tornado. Right. So I think, he, Oh my God. He does that really well, and I—that
3: may be the first link of <laughs> Wes Anderson and,
0: <laughs> and Twister. Oh, if, if only Wes Anderson had directed Twister.
1: Oh, and you- <laughs> that amazing!
0: And yeah. you just give Philip Seymour Hoffman like deadpanning to the camera. Oh my god! I think it, I think it's enough. Yes,
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, a band of climate scientists—that sounds in Kansas. I went looking at kind of some of his techniques and different things. He does. There was a word that popped up in there that I'd never heard before called knolling. Knolling is a process of arranging related objects in parallel or at 90 degree angles as a method of organization. So like if you go to the Wikipedia page, like it has like a, like a poster of like a deconstructed camera, like all the little parts all arranged in this very particular way. And I was like, oh yeah, he does do that. The the particularity of visuals that he likes to display inside inside his movies and does he does that with kind of whether it's a bulletin board that has everything on it and everything connects in some way, like an Isle of Dogs or whatever it might or be. Or the
0: sushi the sushi scene. Like the yeah. meticulousness of like, you know yeah. the making of the sushi. Mm-hmm. Or the kidney operation at the end of the movie. <laughs> I didn't mean, think about it. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, all very particular.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what I would say about a Wes Anderson movie. And I wonder if there's a director working now or in the past that had such an extreme aesthetic. I mean, like the thing about a Wes Anderson movie, and I don't know that I'm necessarily a huge Wes Anderson fan. Um, I did fall asleep during All of Dogs. Um, But it was a late showing to to my credit. It was a late showing Um, 7 p.m. But (laughs) yeah, but but I think that the thing about a Wes Anderson movie and is that, you know, exactly like I didn't need to go into Isle of dogs to know exactly what that movie was going to be. It was going to be straight on characters talking to the camera, symmetry, meticulousness, like a well-crafted shot even if it's stop motion, right? Like, I mean, that's, I know exactly, like if I see this is a Wes Anderson film, I know exactly what kind of film I'm going to get. Maybe not what the subject's about, but I know what is going to happen.
1: Yes, his, his particularity, you know, I, I started to look at, you know, so, okay, some of the things, some of the ways he's described. Obsessively symmetrical compositions, right? Deliberately limited color palette. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Particular ways of drawing the eye and walking shots and snap zooms and these sorts of things. I'm starting to wonder what kind of liturgist Wes Anderson (laughs) would be. I mean, because many of those things sound like choices we make liturgically. Absolutely. Right.
0: Straight straight up. I mean, honestly, yes, 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 yes. Because any liturgy teacher... Like, especially the liturgy teachers that we had in seminary would tell you, you should be able to walk into any Episcopal church in this country and know exactly what's happening because it's so meticulously crafted. You should know what's happening. And that's exactly what you feel. With the Wes Anderson movement, no matter what the plot is, you should know what's happening because it's all crafted exactly the same way. Right.
2: Well, I mean, the word that I'm hearing from both from that analogy is controlled or con- Well, controlled. I mean, a a liturgy, the Wes Anderson, I mean, every, every screenshot you see, and I don't know, I'm thinking more of the stop animation, so I don't know if this is true of all the movies, but everything is deliberate and exactly where it should be, every square inch. And with liturgies that are very formal and meticulously crafted, there is a sort of control. Um, Maybe he'd be an Anglo-Catholic, I'll, I don't know, throw that out there. (laughs) But, um, so I, I guess I'll drop my bombshell now. Although, I I don't know. It's so funny. I I, I was going to come on the podcast and say, you know, I just don't like Wes Anderson movies. Uh, Mm. And then I saw Isle of Dogs and I really liked it. (laughs) But but I think what I like about his movies is also what I don't like. Can I I say this now or is it too soon? Yeah, bring it out. Um, So I thought of this on my own and then I read it somewhere. But I thought of it first.
1: Sure you did.
2: I don't have proof. Um, His movies are snow globes. They're really pretty to look at, but they're set pieces and you shake them up and you see things happen, but they're remote. And I, I just, maybe it's who I am, but I never, I rarely feel a connection to the characters. I love the storytelling and I love the beauty of the movies. I did not like Rushmore. Sorry. Um, I precocious kids kind of drive me crazy. The music is great. The Rushmore soundtrack I listened to for months, but, um, sorry. But I yeah, snow globes. <laughs> I see them as snow globes, and they're remote and beautiful and interesting to watch for a while. Uh, and I'm sorry that I'm, you know, I'm not sorry. That's just how I feel. Sorry, not sorry.
1: Sorry, not sorry. I'm sorry, not sorry. I'm I'm not sorry. Not, no, no this, is, this is good.
0: This is good. Whoops. See, now, that's interesting, Ricardo. I like that point. And what I would ask is, do you feel the same way about like when Betsy's question of like tying this meticulousness and this order to liturgy, like, do you feel the same way about liturgy? Do you feel like it is kind of like a snow globe where things happen, but you're not necessarily affected by it?
2: No, I don't. I can see how that can be the case if there's no real kind of emotion or angst or kind of churning going on. But I think a good sermon and uh, or, or scripture readings well explicated, or prayers of the people really kind of um, movingly brought forth can can change a, a service. And you know, people come back Sunday after Sunday, and they don't seem to get that bored. I I mean, I don't either. I, so no, I, I wouldn't say that he
3: is obviously extremely ordered, and his his scenes are nothing is there by mistake in any of his things. And in that, like, he's a lot like Stanley Kubrick. I think where where I would disagree with Ricardo is that what what makes his movies work within those is that he gets actors who are on the m- more unpredictable side, um, or at least they weren't always predictable. So, like, he was Owen Wilson, you're not going to get the same thing every scene, at least when he was in his early 20s, which is when he was writing and uh, starring in Wes Anderson's movies. Right. Um, he's, he's taking a highly, highly contained atmosphere and then interjecting like a highly, uncon- not, not uncontrolled, but like a unpredictable kind of character within that space. Yeah. At least that's the way that I read it. But all that to say is within a liturgy, you know, I, I like a highly ordered liturgy as well, but I like it when the people within it can kind of, within that order can kind of goof off a little bit and, you know, laugh and not take themselves too seriously.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, you know, Timothy came in new this year, so we've been, you know, messing around and redoing, you know, changing how chapel is, you know, uh, how it's done, giving it more structure, more participation from the congregation and making it more ordered. And initially it was like, Oh, this is way too churchy. Like, "Mm -mm -mm." like this isn't working. Mm -hmm. But then once people settled into it, it's totally changed. And now it's, it's very strange. I've had conversations with students about going back like that, oh, it feels so weird. You know, like I'm I'm very interested to have alums who occasionally come in and participate and to be like, whoa, what was that? You know, that was that was different. Uh but at the same time, like in terms of you know, I have been left cold by liturgies. I think we all have that there, mm-hmm. there are there are times that we have gone to go worship mm-hmm. in that place, even as much as I'm trying to kindle a fire within me, like it it it, it you know, leaves me a little cold. <laughs> And it shows me that like what I appreciate when I go to places like I remember returning to DC and I was going to, I was working at a school in Potomac, Maryland, shout out St. Andrew's Episcopal school. And I needed to find a, a parish to be at regularly as a deacon on Sundays. Cause the Bishop's like, you got to be somewhere you got to do that Sunday thing. You got to get some of that down. Cause you're not doing that at school all the time. And I went to a church on Capitol Hill, Christ church, Capitol Hill And I visited several places, but I went in there and, you know, it was kind of what Greg said, like, I knew what season it was. There were intentional choices. I could see them in the liturgy that had been made. The prayers of the people did have this intentionality that was expressive of the community. It wasn't overly designed, but it was enough. And the song choices and the Eucharistic prayer they used, all those pieces kind of went together to be like, huh, someone is being incredibly thoughtful about what's happening here. And then I found out that they have this group, in this absence of, at that time, being able to have two clergy people, they have the clergy person, but that they had developed over time this ministry of the liturgists, which sounds like a great indie band. The <laughs> and so they would meet regularly and they would there would be a liturgist at every service, and they would craft kind of, what are we doing next season, and what's happening? And it was this group of lay leaders it was it was amazing and you could feel their work in the service
0: i feel like i am rarely moved by a liturgy i i like having ample amount of space for like the holy spirit to do something funky and most times whenever i'm in liturgical worship it just feels constricted and like just like we're saying with wes anderson you know especially like how the dialogue will sometimes have that flat affect to it, right? Um, corporate prayer sort of feels a little zombieish, a little like a little flat, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have the passion uh, that I feel from like extemporaneous prayer, for instance.
1: I do. I think it comes from my page designerness, my graphic artist, and maybe that's another reason why Wes Anderson movies appeal to me because of the visuals. Mm-hmm. But I do like a well-crafted thing that you can play around inside in. Something that gives you a feeling someone's been thoughtful about it. The mechanics are on. They're minimal. Minimal movements. But they all work. Right? And it's one of the reasons that the fact that our chapel is not symmetrical drives me up a freaking wall. <laughs> like, Wendy and I have moved chairs, like, just a little this way and go that way. And like, oh, my God, this is driving me nuts. And maybe in Wes Anderson movies, because of the symmetry, I, what I find is my brain relaxes. But as a graphic artist, I would notice when pages were not, you know, it just wasn't working visually and, and it was off. And so there's something on for me. It hits something mm-hmm. for me internally, both the films and, and liturgy.
0: You take coffee with your cream. You squeeze like a teen. And the Hugh Grant stuff you've watched enough You mumble it in your dreams You rock out on a broom And mangle some tunes On weekends you dance in jammy pants Until the afternoon And I know it's hard to think That someone could be in sync With all your eccentricity you're perfect in the perfect way. You're perfect, and I hope you stay. Your goofy little self eternally. Oh, I'm weird like you. I know it's true. I'm in the clouds up there with you. You think you're flawed, but wouldn't you agree? You're perfect for me. Take
1: action. Uh, so, Take action. on our episodes, we do a little staff pick, a little bit of something that has captured. The attention and uh and we want to recommend it greg you have a staff pick or- i
0: do have a staff pick um so so as people as fans of this po- here podcast no is doubt know here is here i am a big fan of the wire the television show the wire it's the show that i will watch on repeat yes over and over again and there is a new book out about the making of The Wire. It's called All the Pieces Matter. It is a collection of interviews by Jonathan Abrams, who uh, who goes and interviews the cast and the creators and people who worked on the show and stuff like that, and um, and gets their take on uh, participating on the show. And it's it's really. I think what I really like about it is that it's a, it's this great television show that was made by people who, who never really worked in television. Um, so it's created by uh, David Simon and Ed Burns. Ed Burns was a cop in Baltimore, a detective and David Simon was a reporter working for the Baltimore sun. And the two of them came up with this story and, um, called Homicide uh, Life on the Killing Streets uh, that became a network television show. And then they did The Corner and then they did The Wire. And The Wire is like their big piece kind of writ large about the drug trade in Baltimore. Um, and and uh, and it's really fascinating sort of getting interviews. Uh, so reading interviews uh, from cast members and stuff because you really get a sense of how actors process things which i've never really thought about i just think that you know actors show up and they act that's what they do um but it was nice like sort of seeing you know the ones that had to play addicts like how do you play an addict if you're not an addict yourself right and you know it was the breakout role for idris elba um in the states and uh and dominic west in the states and like seeing these british actors sort of come over and try to figure out how to play sort of street level um, American drug dealers and cops and stuff like that has was it's, it's fascinating. So I would recommend all the pieces matter by Jonathan Abrams um, because especially uh, when you work for a church world and you have, or a school or really any industry and you have a lot of different things that happen that make the thing happen you know it's not just one person that does everything it's neat to see how the whole system kind of works off of each other to create beautiful art so.
2: thank you greg gotta watch greg. the wire sometime
0: you should thank you So much. Well, it is dickensian you would like it Ricardo. <gasps> hey, dickensian. <laughs> where, where can people where can people find our podcast betsy
1: oh all of the places greg where the, the place live, including this app on my phone. I don't really know what its name is, but that's where I get it. But Stitch, um, you can find it wherever you get your uh your podcast needs met, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever it happens to be. You can also find us on Episcopal Cafe, uh, where you can get all of your need for a fix. For Episcopal oh. News needs met right we love Episcopal Cafe we know that you will too so check them out particularly with uh, with uh, General Convention coming up in Austin and all that you know hometown of you know West Anderson spent some time there you know it's all, all connected all connected yeah. so um, nice. so yeah so until the next time uh, we get together thank you Greg thank you Ricardo thank you Timothy and everybody have a good night
0: and night keep night those colors her. popped
1: Pop up. <laughs>